If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to Acts chapter 13, and we'll be talking a little bit about mission this morning. Most of you probably do not know this, but there is a gentleman who is called the father of modern missions. Does anybody know that gentleman's name? I didn't think so. Anybody? No? No? Two of you do, you won't yell. His name is William Carey. William Carey was a particular Baptist. I don't know what they were so particular about, but uh, they were particular. And uh, he argued in the late 18th and early 19th century that the uh, world should be involved, especially the world with privilege should be involved in going to the darkest and hardest places on earth to bring the light and gospel of Jesus Christ. They called him uh, the father of modern missions because of the type of work that he did. Uh, Kerry ended up in India for 40 years of his life. While he was there, he didn't just spread the gospel or try to teach English. He actually translated the Bible into six different languages. Could you imagine that? Some people's life's work would be to translate the Bible into one language. He did it six times in the 40 years that he was there. He was an educator. In fact, he founded Sarampore College, and Sarampore College still exists in India today. And the goal of the college was twofold. The first part of the college was to be able to train pastors and Christians who would then go into communities throughout India and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Kerry had a second part to that mission, and there was also what we would call a liberal arts school that they had in Sarampore College And to quote Carey, this is the reason they founded that college. So that every caste, color, or no matter their country of the person associated could be lifted from the place that they were at. And so if you know anything about India, the caste system is uh, still there today. And people are not viewed as the same level of human depending on what particular caste they are in. Carey tried to break that down. He also was innovative in terms of social justice. He worked with the governors in India to end infant sacrifice, and there was even a practice in India where widows would sacrifice themselves on their husband's coffin uh, after they had died. He ended, or act to end that practice. And so this William Carey became a very famous man uh, and became a very well-respected missionary. It didn't start easy for him, though. In fact, William Carey was trying to defend the idea that he should go overseas and that other people should go overseas. And at one point when he was railing and talking about the need to go in those day, in that day and age, we could never say this today, this was a different time, but to go and bring the gospel to the heathen, right? And he would talk about bringing the gospel to the heathen and somebody who was in authority over him looked at him and said, William, sit down. If God wants to bring the gospel to the heathen and to save them, that is his business. He doesn't need you to help him. And Carey was saddened but not stopped by that. He had to argue for many years to get his denomination to help send him overseas. He preached a particularly stirring message one day, and the two points of the message were as follows. As he was trying to encourage the folks in England that They had the means and they had the opportunity to go and bring the word of God to unchurched people groups. He said in two points, 
Our job as the church of Jesus Christ is to expect great things from God and to attempt great things for God. That's what Carrie said. We often, when we look at world missions, local missions, or any kind of endeavor that we get outside the walls of the church and try to do, we, we often uh, run into problems. We often have times when not everybody can see exactly why we're doing what we're doing. But today I just want to talk to you for a few moments about the nature of missions, whether it be world missions or local missions, with that theme that our job as the people of God is to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. I'd like to go to the very beginning of missionary activity in the Bible. Now, to be honest with you, it's not the very beginning. If we were going to the beginning, we'd be reading the book of Jonah. We all know how that went, right? Jonah and the whale. The question could have been asked that day, what does God's prophet in Israel have to do with Nineveh, the Assyrians, the enemy? Why should we go and preach to them? But the title of today's message from the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys is What Has Antioch to Do with Cyprus? Are you in chapter 13 of Acts? It says this in verse 1. Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the ruler, and Saul, who we all know as Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Many of you know the Apostle Paul. In fact, most of the New Testament is written by that guy. He was what we would call the archetypical missionary a man who was sent out from the church in Antioch and started his missionary journeys in Cyprus and didn't start until he had planted churches and spread the gospel throughout large portions of the Roman Empire. The church that we have today in the world in part is because of this missionary named Paul who here in verse 1 is called Saul. And we know that God changed his name when he came to Christ. Saul was a very distinguished name within the uh, Jewish mindset, but God changed his name to Paul, which meant little guy, because Paul was a man of high levels of pride who needed to be brought low before he could serve the Lord. I want to talk for a moment about this church in Antioch that we read about that sends out Barnabas and Saul to the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean Sea. Antioch was about 500 airline miles, all right, 500 airline miles north of Jerusalem. So we're talking from what? Here to the Tennessee border, something of that nature, quite a ways. The church had been dispersed from Jerusalem after the stoning of a man called Stephen, and many of the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, try saying that five times fast, Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians had to flee from Jerusalem because of the persecution that was taking place there. And we find out in chapter 11 of Acts that some of those who have fled from Jerusalem went to Cyprus and then made their way to Antioch. And we believe that this is one of the first places that people were evangelizing Gentiles. Not just Jews, but Gentiles. We find out from verse or chapter 11 of Acts that these Greek-speaking Jewish Christians were winning many, many converts to Jesus Christ. 
And after they had won many, many converts to Jesus Christ, the church in Jerusalem, the place where Peter and John and James, the brother of Jesus, were still working to bring people to Christ, felt like they needed to send an emissary to help out the church there. And the emissary that they sent was a man named Barnabas. Barnabas means son of encouragement. His real name was Joseph. So Barnabas goes up to Antioch, and he begins to get the lay of the land, and he sees that God's doing great work in Antioch, that the church is growing exponentially. And so Barnabas gets an idea. He goes, you know, I know a really young preacher, a guy who is just on fire for God. He used to persecute Christians, but now he believes in Jesus. I'm going to go grab him. So he goes up and he gets Saul, who we know as Paul, and brings him down to Antioch. And we find that the church in Antioch is thriving. In fact, once Barnabas and Saul begin their ministry, the church in Antioch grows even further. In fact, the first time that the word Christian was used was in Antioch. Not Jerusalem or Ephesus or Rome. Christians, what we are, were first called Christians at this thriving church in Antioch. This church in Antioch became one of the largest centers of Christian activity for the next four, five, six hundred years before the advent of Islam. Antioch was the church to be at. It was a great place from which to minister. Today it's in northern Syria, and there's churches there that commemorate the work that was done. This was a church that was thriving, and we know that Antioch continued to be the home base of Paul's missionary journeys that that was the place that he was sent out from. So we have a picture of a vibrant church doing a vibrant work. But there's a question that I want to ask to you this morning, and the only way to get the answer is to look deeper into the scriptures, is what does Antioch have to do with Cyprus? I mean, we have a thriving church in Antioch, a place from which many, many people are getting saved. They have five pastors slash prophets slash apostles that are heading up and leading this church and all of a sudden we find out that they're fasting and they're praying because fasting and prayer go together abstinence from food and seeking the lord for a specific purpose and all of a sudden two of the church leaders leave they head out by way of cyprus and if you read the rest of the book of Acts all the way up through Acts chapter 28, you find that Paul and his missionary journeys are expounded upon for 18, or I'm sorry, 17, 16 chapters. What has Antioch to do with Cyprus? Why did Paul and Barnabas need to go there? Anybody know the answer? Look down, do you see it? It doesn't say. You can't find it. The only person who specifically knew or knows, well, I shouldn't say, I'm, I, I really hope Paul and Barnabas knew and the church at that time knew, but they didn't feel the need to tell us the reader. All that they felt the need to tell us the reader was that the Holy Spirit knows. God's Spirit working in the church knows. And so he said, set apart for me, Saul and Barnabas, to the work to which I have called them. So that's an interesting thing to sort of see here. We have a church that's growing. We have a church that's vibrant. We have a church that is winning converts, both Jew and Gentile. And in the midst of this growing, vibrant church, still the church is fasting and praying for what's next. Isn't that interesting? 
even though they're experiencing great success and great growth, they are fasting specifically to know what God wants them to do next. Now, for those of you who were here last week, we talked about this. What is the fast that the Lord requires? A fast that results in mission. A fast that results in us doing something with the devotion to which, that, to which we have shown God. So what we know about the church in Antioch is it was vibrant, it was devoted. That means they prayed and abstained from food and saying, God, what's next? Obviously, they had the means. Someone had to bankroll Saul and Barnabas to send them on this journey. We also see that they have obedience that when Saul and Barnabas are told to head out, they head out. And, of course, we know from some of the early evangelists of Antioch that they had come by way of Cyprus. So there probably is a connection to Cyprus in some way. I do want you to notice something about this fasting and praying that took place that ended up with Saul and Barnabas leaving their vibrant church in order to go plant other churches. And it's this. Niger, Lucius, and Menaean stayed home. I don't want us to miss that. Of the five leaders of this church, three of them stick around and continue to lead the church in vibrancy and devotion and love of God. In fact, we find out later on in the book of Acts and through the epistles that Antioch leads the charge to make sure that the church in Jerusalem can stay financially afloat when there's a famine in Judea. So this group of Antiochian Christians, they have the means and the ability to make sure that the seedbed of Christianity down in Jerusalem doesn't go under and starve to death. That's the nature of the church in Antioch. The obedience of Paul and Barnabas is neat to see here. These were the early days of Christianity. The idea of world missions had not yet sort of even been expounded upon. Yet they hop on a boat and they go. And they also must have had a clear vision for what God wanted them to do. The Holy Spirit said, set Paul and Barnabas apart for the work to which I have called them, and they know that they're to get on a boat and go to Cyprus. They did not get on a camel and head to Babylon. They knew that they were to get on a boat and go to Cyprus. That says something to me as I read the scriptures. It says to me that God was preparing Saul and Barnabas for this work long before he called them to that work. He was preparing them for the work before he called them to the work. Now, I have an idea that all the places that Paul went and all the places that Barnabas went didn't work out the way they had hoped it would work out. In fact, we know that's the case from the Scripture. And I have no doubt that there were times that Paul and Barnabas didn't feel equipped to the work that they were supposed to do. But God had laid the foundation before he called them to the work so that they would know exactly what they were supposed to do. Years ago, when I was a senior in high school, I was convinced that I was going to go into broadcasting. That's what I wanted to do. I have that voice. <laughs> I also love sports radio. And I thought I would love to do sports radio or, or call uh, baseball or football games, and that's what I thought that I should be doing. But I'd been away to youth camp, and I'd spent enough time in the altar to know that that's really not what God had for me. 
I had a youth pastor who called on us regularly to seek the Lord and ask the Lord what was to be in our future. And, and, and I'd seen some things in prayer, and I had felt some things in my heart that made me know that I wasn't going to be calling any football games. And yet, that's where I was headed, and that's what I wanted to do. And then one day, I was sitting right here in this service. Uh, we were turned the other direction, and I was sitting right about where those stairs are. And we had an Iranian pastor come in, and he started to call out people in the service and tell them what God was speaking to him. And he looked at me, he said, Matthew, stand up. And he said, God has a call on your life. And then he came and he prayed for me, and, and I felt the flood of the Holy Spirit like I'd never felt before. Now, you know what he said was, Matthew, God's placed a call on your life. And that was it. He didn't give me any more. But I knew what I needed to do. God had been preparing my heart, and I knew I needed to become a pastor. See, he, he had put things in my spirit and in my heart, and he had brought things to my memory so that when the call came, it was clear what I was to do with that call. And I believe that's normative for God. I truly do. I believe that when God calls and speaks into our lives, he's already prepared our hearts to be ready for the call which he gives. And it seems like that was exactly what happened here with Paul and Barnabas. What has Antioch to do with Cyprus? Only the Holy Spirit knows. But when the Holy Spirit says go, you go. And this is important for us to know as a church, and it's important for us to keep in our mindset. It's easy to measure our faith in God by how things are going at the church. Is the church growing? What's the budget look like? That is an indicator, we believe, of the vibrancy and the life of our church. While those things might help to us to understand exactly what the trends are in our church, that is not the measure. The measure of our faith in God and the measure of our vibrancy as a church resides in our willingness to take the gospel wherever God calls, whenever he calls, with whomever he calls. That's the measure of our church, its vibrancy and its faith. Are we listening? Are we prepared to move? And is God speaking and sending us out? Do we obey? Romans 10, 13 puts it this way. You could turn there if you'd like to. Years and years later, after Paul had been all over the Mediterranean world sharing the gospel, years and years later, he wrote to a church in Rome who he had not yet visited. He was talking about his sadness that the Jewish people, his people, were not turning to Christ in the same way that the Gentiles were, the non-Jewish folks. He was sad that the folks in Jerusalem and in Galilee and in Joppa and in Caesarea weren't turning to Christ the way the folks were in Ephesus and Rome and Antioch and Corinth. And into that sadness, he writes these words. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? 
And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. What's interesting about that beautiful quotation that reminds us to go and send out from wherever we're at is that Paul was writing from his heart and needing to remind himself exactly what he was about. Because I believe for Paul it would have been easy to go home. Go to Jerusalem and try this. Go to Galilee, go to Joppa, go to Caesarea. Go back to the Jewish people and say, listen, Christ is the answer. But he reminds us in Romans 10 that the goal for all people, Jew or Gentile, is to go and help people believe in the one that they should call on. Help to speak about the one of whom they need to hear. Help to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ so that men and women can know that God loves them, has an eternal future for them in heaven, and wants to change their life into the exact design that he had when they were created. Paul reminds himself of that all these years later. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. You see, even after years and years of being a missionary, Paul still expected great things from God. And he still was attempting great things for God. From the first missionary journey to the last, Paul was continually, continually sharing the gospel so that people could call on the name of the Lord. I imagine there were some in the church way back in Acts 13 who asked, what has Antioch to do with Cyprus? But what if the church had invested in those voices rather than the voice of the Holy Spirit that said, go and send? We always, as the church of Jesus Christ, have to invest in the voice of the Holy Spirit that says, go and send. That is the work to which we are called, that we would expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. I want to take just a few more minutes today to talk about what we can do individually with what we've heard. How can we apply this specifically to our lives? And I believe that the three things that I talk about for the next few minutes will help us to have a resolve towards these ideas. One, and we talked about this at length last week, if you missed last week's message, I encourage you to hear it, because these fit together, even though that wasn't a plan when we set out. First, we should have devotion with expectation. Devotion with expectation. Their prayer and fasting was asking, God, what's next? God, what do you want us to do? God, what is it that you have for us? Last week we learned that devotion for devotion's sake sort of makes God upset. He wants us to be changed. He wants us to move from where we're at and to do the things that he's called us to do. Devotion with expectation is to look to God to say, God, I expect to hear from you. I expect for you to speak into my life, and I expect that you have placed a call on my life for something, for someone. Now, 
not everybody has the entire plan laid out for them every time they have devotion with expectation. All we know is that the church sent them to Cyprus. And you might just know the next step in your journey when you spend time praying and fasting and kneeling in the altar and worshiping God and praying uh, in your quiet time. You might just want to know what's next, and that's fine. It might not be to go to Cyprus. It may not be to go to Topeka. And it may not even to be to venture with some of your brothers and sisters to our local mission field. But your devotion should be married to expectation for what God has for you to do next. That's the type of God we have. He wants us to participate with him in what he is doing in the world. That's each and every one of you. Well, I've been away from God for 20 years, and this is the first time I've been in church in a long time, and Pastor Matt, I, I, I just am trying to get my life straight. Wonderful. God bless you. He does a great job of straightening out our lives, and that's part of why we exist as a church. When you pray, pray with expectation. Pray with expectation. You don't have to be the perfect Christian before God chooses to use you. In fact, there ain't any perfect Christians here. Yet God chooses to use us anyways. Devotion with expectation that God wants to use your life, not just straighten out your life. Second, expectation with obedience. When God says go, go. When God says send, send. When God says give, give. When God says wait, wait. And when God is silent, keep praying. But in the midst of all that, expectation with obedience. I believe that there are some of us in that camp today. We know exactly what God has called us to. We had been prepared for it, and he placed the call, whether it be sitting in this altar or sitting in our easy chair praying or being at a worship conference or, 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 or riding in the car. We heard the call specifically, and we knew what he said, but we're not obeying that call. We're not obeying that call. Going back to Paul for just a minute, for those of you who've been in church and have a Christian heritage, what would the world have been like if Paul had decided to stay home? What would the world have been like if Paul had just sat down in Antioch and said, I'm part of a vibrant church. We're good here. Now, I'm not saying that anybody here is Paul. I don't think anybody here is going to write any scripture. I doubt that's going to happen. I'm positive that's not going to happen. If you think you've written scripture, come talk to me and the elders. But I want to tell you today, folks, I want to tell you today, God has something for you to do in this world. That's part of the gospel. That's part of the kingdom. And you need to obey when he calls. And he's going to honor that. And it's going to be the life that God designed you to have. One further thing before we close today. AJ, don't come quite yet. I want to get through this point before people start looking at you strumming. Obedience with resolve. There are, and I, I was doing some fuzzy math earlier, there are 15 more chapters of resolve here in the book of Acts. 
By the time Paul wrote, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, how many times has he, had he been shipwrecked? How many times had he been beaten? How many times has he been imprisoned? He was even stoned and left for dead. Obedience with resolve. I want to tell you something that our Lord promised us. When we step out and engage in kingdom of God work, bringing about God's ends to this earth, things get tough. And things don't always go the way we plan. Hardship and persecution are promised us. And I believe there could be a few people here today who you had some devotion with expectation and then you had some expectation with obedience but your obedience then finally was not matched by a resolve to continue in what God had called and I want to invite you today to consider the possibility that God wants you to push through consider the possibility that what you perceive as a setback may be exactly what God had for that place in that time to teach you and guide you and mold you into what he has for the bright future. To take what you view as a loss and say eventually, in the name of Jesus, this is going to be a gain. And I know for some of you, you go, Pastor Matt, I have no idea what you're talking about here. And I understand that. But there are a few, I believe, you're right there today. And because the resolve wavered, Back here, the devotion with expectation is not even an option today. And I encourage you, keep seeking God for what's next. Keep asking him what call he is placing on your life, whether it be for today or next week or next year. Because he desires to use you. He desires to send some of you he desires to have some of you be senders. He desires for some of you to step out in faith in ways you never have before and meet him in the work that he's doing in this world. Will you obey him with resolve and when things get tough, say, I'm driving a stake. Here I stand. I can do no other because God's called me to do it. That's the type of resolve he's looking for his people. And that's why two decades after Paul's ministry began, he could write, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. I want us all to have beautiful feet. Beautiful feet. Don't look down. Beautiful feet. Beautiful feet, symbolically. Because we bring the good news, the good news, wherever God's called us to. Would you bow your heads and pray with me this morning? For those of you who are new, this is our commitment time. We just take a few minutes to pray, and then we close with a benediction song. I'm going to invite our elders to come. They would love to pray for anybody here today who came with any kind of need. Whether you're responding to the message this morning, or whether... You came in with sickness or illness or need for direction. Our elders would love to pray. These altars are open. And if you want to come and kneel and pray, you are welcome to do that for any reason. Or you can be prayed for 
by one of the elders of the church. They'd love to pray with you.